So we're going to read before Rob comes to, to preach to us. And Rob, you wanted Hebrews 12, 1 to 14? Yeah. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's where they come from. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Father God, speak to us through your word. Encourage and challenge our hearts. We pray for Rob. Anoint him now. Um, help us hear you speaking through him. In your name, amen. Amen. That's well. I've been hugely enjoying our pastor's series on the Lord's Prayer. I hope you have as well. And one thing I've been praying for, and I'm sure you have too, is that God would really do something special in our church. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for. Have you ever wondered sometimes why our church might not be growing as quickly as you would like? or as quickly as some other churches that you might know of? Why is it then that God is not opening the floodgates and sending up dozens and dozens of men and women and young people to be converted and dis discipled? Is it something we're doing wrong? Are we on the wrong track, doctrinally or practically? Is there a blockage somewhere that if it could be identified and removed, then God might send us real revival. Have you ever thought 
that you might be, or I might be, part of that blockage. I've thought that. I've often thought if it might be something in me that is preventing the Lord from pouring out his blessing on this wonderful church. There's a story in Joshua chapter 6 and chapter 7 that speaks to this. It's the story of Achan. In Joshua chapter 6, we read how God gave clear and firm instructions to the people, Joshua's people and the military commanders, that they were to do battle and they were to conquer the land, but they were not to loot the temple of all the gold and silver and all that kind of stuff, but they were to take that gold and silver and they were to bring it all to the temple. That was going to be used eventually, melted down and made into the, 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 the furniture of the tabernacle and the temple. So they were to conquer, but they were not to loot. Chapter 7, the Israelites suffer an unexpected defeat by a group of people called the men of Ai. Verse 5 of chapter 7. They chased the Israelites from the city gates as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people of Israel melted in fear and they became like water. They weren't expecting defeats like this, but they got one. Joshua is furious, and he turns on God, and he says, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan and then deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Of course, God has to rebuke Joshua, and he does. And he says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. That's the silver and the gold. And the story goes on that the next morning the people gather and Achan, who happens to be one of the messianic tribe of Judah, isn't that unbelievable, confesses that he is the one who committed the illegal looting. And the loot, the silver, the gold, is found buried in the ground under his tent. He is stoned to death along with his family. It's a serious and a sad end to a a story, an incident amidst a long and a bloodthirsty saga of the conquest of the land of Israel. But the message is clear. One man gets in the way of God's purposes and brings God's judgment, in this case, upon his people. So my question has to be, if I am indeed one who may be getting in the way of God pouring out his blessing upon this place, what do I do? Do I go away? Do I take myself away from this place in the hope that God might then fulfill his purposes in this place? Or do I stay? Or do I seek to God, to, for God to guide me in bringing my life into line with his and with what he wants for me and he wants for this place? I've chosen that second option. And my quest is to ensure that I am centered in God's will for me and therefore can in no way become a blockage in God's desire to bless his people. And in my search for God's will for my life, I go to the only place I know where I can ever go for guidance, and that's to his word. And the passage that I've been studying lately, along with the work that I'm doing in the book of Acts, is the book of Hebrews. There's so much here for the Christian seeking God's plan and God's purposes for life. Hebrews 11, as we've seen, is a list of this 
Many, many folk of faith, the, the cloud of witnesses. There have been examples, as Nick has shared with us, who have been in the center of God's plan for their lives. Yes, they had their lapses, every single one of them, but they were men and women of faith. And then we come to that wonderful beginning of chapter 12 that has just been read to us. Therefore, seeing as we are encompassed about by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with endurance or perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Whenever I read those verses, one word comes to mind. Wow. <laughs> wow. We have a bit of a dilemma here, you see, because this, the chap, that passage that Nick read to us ends on a, a rather somber note. It ends with these words at the, at the end of, of verse 14. Without holiness, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There is a movement, it's called the Just Accept Jesus movement, that suggests that all we need to do to get to heaven is to be able to appoint to a time when we accepted Jesus into our hearts. And that accepting Jesus then, that, that incident we can remember, is our guarantee of eternal life. There's another point of view in the sometimes called the Lordship Salvation Movement. They say, no, your surety, your guarantee of salvation and eternal life comes from a changed life. A life that acknowledges the Lordship of Christ over your life. A determination to live a holy life. In rebutting this, the accept Jesus folks say, ah, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Because that's adding works to faith. You're saying faith is not enough. And the Lordship Salvation folks say, no, 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 it's James that says faith without works is dead faith. I have to confess to you that I am firmly in the Lordship Salvation camp. And I believe that the Bible says we must repent of our sin. I believe the Bible says we must accept Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And then experience a changed life. That means living, attempting to live a holy life of worship and service, which is the inevitable consequence of a changed heart. If you're truly saved, if you're a true Christian, your life will exhibit or begin to exhibit at least this holiness. And that is your assurance of salvation and eternity. Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Paul had to fight against something in, in a number of his epistles called antinomianism. Simply meaning that we as Christians, we're already made righteous. When we accepted Christ, we were made, made righteous. So no matter how we behave, we're going to go to heaven. Yes, when we are in Christ, we are made positionally, judicially, in God's eyes, holy. We are made holy in him. Because when God sees us, God sees Christ's holiness in us. But... We are still commanded over and over and over 
and over again to live holy lives while we occupy these mortal bodies. We can't assume that just we, because we believe ourselves to be righteous in his sight because of the work of Christ on the cross, therefore a life of obedience is not necessary. Nothing could be further from the truth. A person thinking that way is certainly not a Christian at all. So I'd like to spend a few minutes this morning expanding on what this means. Without holiness, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What is meant here by holiness? What do we need to do then to be sure we see God? What kind of people will see God? Just what does the Bible mean by practical and personal holiness? And of course, this is the question which could drive a thousand sermons. I'm going to try to answer it very briefly this morning by just looking particularly at those first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. And I suggest there are three things here very briefly. Firstly, practical, personal holiness is giving up, giving up that which we know to be sinful. Therefore, seeing as we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Here we have this picture of the, the athlete in the race. And as the athlete comes to take the race, you can imagine this in a, in a great Roman or Greek amphitheater, he would cast off his cloak, and in those days they ran almost naked. They had, wore very little at all, just a, a loincloth and maybe some kind of something around their feet. But they got rid of all the weight. They got rid of all the things that could entangle them, and they ran. That's what this is talking about. If I could use a personal example, I can remember once on a particular infantry course I went on way back in the, must be about the mid-70s, we used to have to run three times a week with a helmet on, steel helmet, carrying our big rifle, which is a big heavy R1 rifle, 30, uh, 30 rounds of ammunition, and three water bottles around your waist, and boots, army boots, 10 kilometers three times a week along the dirt roads, and off we'd go. It was a bit tiring, especially for a skinny lad like me. And when we got back to camp, we used to have what they call a warm down. What you'd do then is you'd take off your helmet, you'd take off the ammunition belt, you'd take off the water bottles, you'd put your rifle down, you'd take off your boots, and you'd run barefoot for just about a kilometer or so down the road. And it felt like you were running on air. I could have run forever. The difference between running with weight and the running without it is two different things altogether. Sin weighs us down. Sin trips us up. J.C. Ryle describes personal holiness simply as a determination to avoid every known sin and to obey every known commandment. So let's stop just for a while and ask ourselves, what are the sins that might be weighing us down, tripping us up? What do I need to give up? And I don't want to sound like some kind of killjoy here, some kind of crazed fundamentalist determined to take all the fun out of daily life. But there are things that the Christian is told to lay aside. And I can't list all of them, and I don't intend to. But are there maybe some personal habits that are not helping in our Christian life? 
Are we feeding our bodies things that are not helping at all? Are we putting into ourselves things that we shouldn't be putting into ourselves? The normal things we talk about, I'm, I'm so pleased today that fewer and fewer people are smoking simply because of the damage it does. And for a Christian to damage their body so, so completely by something like that is, is rather foolish. And we talk about many, many other things as well. Uh, certain types of foods, uh, possibly too much alcohol. I had an interesting chat with some folk the other day. I was running a course for executives uh, down in Bath, and there were eight young people on the course between the ages probably 30 and 45. And speaking to them, just I don't know where it even came up, but four of, four of them said they'd all given up alcohol in the last three or four months. And I was surprised by that because I thought we had a problem in this country of you know, people just drinking too much. They said, no, we've given up. I said, why? They said, well, we just feel so much healthier. These are young 30-year-olds, 35-year-olds. And it made me think, alcohol, unfortunately for the Christian, as for anybody else, is a disinhibitor. The more you have, the more it removes the natural inhibitions. It stops us, the, the inhibitions that stop us normally from doing things silly. Alcohol takes those away and it, it, it disinhibits, stops, and we start thinking things we shouldn't think, saying things we shouldn't say, even doing things we shouldn't do. One of the guys said to me, he was, a big, uh, he was one of these bodybuilder type of blokes. He said, I gave it up because I read that um, two units of alcohol, two glasses of wine, destroys the same number of nerve neurons or brain cells that one solid punch in a boxing match does. Every, every two units of, of alcohol destroys in the region of about 3,000 neurons. But we've got several trillion of them, so there are plenty to go around, so you don't have to worry about it too much. But is it things we feed our minds that we shouldn't be feeding our minds? Are we listening to things we shouldn't be listening to? Are we reading things we shouldn't be reading? Are we, are we watching things we shouldn't be watching? One of the ways we distinguish ourselves from others is by those kinds of habits. Is it maybe something we need to, to give up, something to do with our tongue, things we say? I'm always amazed by that passage in Isaiah chapter 6 when, when, when Isaiah feels absolutely shattered in the presence of the Lord. He mentions one particular sin. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Of all the sins he could have mentioned, why does he mention that one? Because, as James says, it's probably the most serious of all of the sins that we commit. Day by day, we, we say things wrong. Sometimes it's cursing and blasphemy. I hope not. I, there are two of you in this church. I don't know whether you're here today. I can't see without my glasses. Um, but two of you, on, two, on one occasion, both of you, you know who you are and you won't mind. I won't mention you. But I heard you saying in conversation with me and another, oh my God. And I said to you, please don't say that. Rather say, oh, Muhammad. Who'd say that? Oh, Allah. You don't say that because you take your life in your hands if you say that. Why do we say, oh my God. Oh, Jesus. Oh, we... Whenever somebody says, oh, Jesus, to me, I say, oh, you know him too, do you? Let's talk. Maybe it's gossip. I don't know what it is. I, I tend to gossip. We all do a bit of it. It's so silly. 
Maybe it's we complain and we moan and we groan and we should just be, you know, oh, what an awful day it is today. Oh, what a terrible weather. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Then there are the subtle sins. Denise has a book which she is busy reading, and I, I, I want to read it, my love, when you've finished with it. It's called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges, a great Christian writer. Let me list some of the sins he mentions. You won't like this. Sins, respectable sins, anxiety, discontentment, pride, lack of self-control, impatience, anger, envy, worldliness. So many of these things we no longer call sin. We call them mental illness, and they may well be. It may well be uh, part of what goes wrong in our heads. But sin needs to be cast aside. And we should be doing everything we can to make sure that we can cast it aside. And one of the things we need to do is repent. I was speaking with somebody the other day. Some, some, some days ago now, who does suffer from anxiety. And they were sharing with me the different uh, procedures that they were going through, the different uh, uh, therapies, and they sounded really good. There was a certain medication they were taking, which it sounded good, and I, I, I applauded them for doing that. But I did say to them, because they were a believer, I said, have you repented? Have you repented yet? Anxiety, according to the scriptures, is a sin. Have you repented? By all means, take all of the medications your doctor prescribes to you. Don't stop doing that. Get all the help you can from Christian psychologists. Don't, don't avoid that. But sometimes we need to repent. And then there are all these social sins, inappropriate relationships, things we get ourselves tangled up in. But I'm beginning to sound like a crazed fundamentalist, so I'm going to stop right there. Holiness is sometimes about giving up things. You know what those things are. Secondly, it's practical holiness is about taking up, not just giving up, but by taking up a lifestyle of which God approves. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked before us. We have to take up our running equipment and get into the race. What does this race look like? Well, it's different for each one of us, and we, we thank God for that. This verse tells us that it is a race marked out for us. What does it mean? What does it mean that God has a plan just for you, and he wants to see this plan fulfilled? And when we step to the side and we get out of our lane, we trip and we fall. We are to run with perseverance. This doesn't mean that we are running alone and running in our own strength. Because the scripture is full of passages that speak of running the race in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And even here the writer says that we are to run with Christ as our guide and our goal. But just pause here just for a moment. What could this mean for us personally? What can we say without fear of contradiction about God's plan for each and every one of us? In what ways can we be sure that our race will be exactly the same as the race demanded of every other believer? Let me say one or two things about this. I'd suggest, first of all, that it is a race that has a beginning and an end. When did your race as a Christian begin? Well, of course, we think back to the day when we, we, we took Christ into our lives. 
But if you want to have a really good conversation with somebody and they say, well, when did you become a Christian? This is what you say to them. Oh, before time was even created. What? No, I, I, be, I was a Christian long before the world was even made. Really? Well, that's true. Sometimes I say when people say, when did you become a Christian? I say, around about 2,000 years ago. What? Yeah, 2,000 years ago. Jesus bought my salvation on the cross when he died. Of course, it begins, it begins with that wonderful day when uh, we turn our lives over to him. And it ends with our physical departure from this place. We take up full citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And all of us here this morning in this church, if we are believers, are busy racing. And it's an all-consuming race. It occupies every moment of every day. You're never not in the race. There are no rest periods. It's a race full of obstacles. It's not a straight sprint. Nowhere in the scripture are we promised an easy race. In fact, the opposite is true. We are constantly warned that there will be obstacles at every turn. Some see the Christian life as some kind of playground. It's not. It's a battleground. If your Christian life is just fun, 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 and joy, 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 every minute of every day, you're in the wrong race. God is not interested, uh, Spurgeon said, in what he called flash-in-the-pan Christians. Those who seem to start with a lot of noise and flurry, but soon fade and pass off the scene. They're quick to begin with great enthusiasm and lots of big ideas and loud talk and heated emotion. But when the going gets tough, they fall through the cracks because they have no staying power. And despite the great cloud of witnesses, what is also true about this race is there are those who don't want you to win. There are those, there are those who don't want you to win. The Bible makes it clear that not everyone is going to be cheering for you. There is one in particular who will do everything he can to trip you up. There will be times in your Christian life when you get no applause and all you get is a lot of jeers and scorn. The evil one is real and he has his own plan for you. It is both an individual and a team race at the same time. The beauty of this race is that not only do we have God's Holy Spirit empowering our hearts and bodies and minds, but we have brothers and sisters who are running alongside of us who can help and encourage and advise and pick us up when we stumble. And finishing the race will demand perseverance and even sacrifice. And this is where I come to this business about taking up. There are things not only to give up, but there are things we need to take up. And the, the key verse for all of this is in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says we're to take up the full armor of God. The full armor of God. You know, the belt of truth about our waist. That piece of equipment upon which everything else hangs, the breastplate, the sword, the scabbard, it all hangs on this, this truth. And we wear it around our waist. And we need, we need to, as Christians today, to be searchers for truth. There's an awful lot of, what can I call it, untrue truth out there. Truth that people call truth, but is not truth at all. We need to stand firm, you and I as believers. We need to stand firm on what the Bible declares as truth. Because the world doesn't believe it anymore. The world finds it hideous to suggest that any one religion should lay claim to the truth. 
How can you say you've got the truth? It's your truth. It's not our truth. There is but one truth. And he is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And of course that means Christ's righteousness. But it also means the life of righteousness that we are to live. The Bible talks about this in Galatians chapter, chapter 5. We're to put on love and joy and peace. Forbearance, kindness, goodness. This is the righteous life. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're to put the gospel of peace on our feet. Wherever we go, we as Christians are meant to bring peace. Blessed, said Jesus, are the peacemakers. They'll be called the children of God. We're to be peacemakers. We're not to disturb the peace. We're to make the peace. There will be times when you tell the truth that the peace will get a wee bit disturbed. Believe me. But we are, at all things, we are to bring this gospel of peace. We're to put on the shield of faith. We've talked about that, or Nick has shared about that already this morning. The sh faith is that, that way of, of understanding and believing that protects us from the things that we need protection from. We're to put on the helmet. We're to take up the helmet of salvation. The most vulnerable part of our bodies is always our head. Because our head contains our mind and our emotions and our heart and our spiritual life is all in the head. And we need to protect our head with salvation. And we're to pick up the sword of the spirit, which Paul says is the word of God. And take that sword with us as a weapon wherever we go. You know, I've... I've often considered why I preach and teach here. And I've come to the conclusion it has never been primarily so that people would get a greater knowledge of the Bible. I have never, I don't think I've ever preached with the prime, with the prime thought that people might know the Bible better. But it's primarily that people would find lives being changed. We preach, and Nick, I think, will agree with me here, I hope, that when we preach, what we're preaching towards is changed lives. We just don't, we believe right, but we've got to behave right. We've got to live as God wants us to live. And let me finish. Holiness is about giving up, giving up those sins that entangle us. It's about taking up the equipment of the Christian life, and running with perseverance. And finally, it is about looking up. Looking up to the only one who has ever lived a Christian life, a holy life. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus. He's the one, I, I get this picture of him when I think about the race. As a, somebody standing just beyond the finish tape. And here we are, we're running. We've got our heads up and we're watching the finish tape. And there he is. And he's saying, come on, you can do this. I've done it. You can do it. You can do it in my strength. We need that vision of Christ as is described here by the writer of Hebrews. If I can share one more thing, personal thing. I'm going into hospital on Saturday and then two Saturdays after that to have some lenses replaced in my eyes because they're a bit cloudy at the moment. And they, the people who've had this operation say, you see the world in a whole new way. The colors look so much brighter 
the precision with which you can see. I'm really looking forward to that. But one thing it's not going to give me, which I wish it could, is a clearer vision of my Savior. You need another kind of operation to get that kind of vision. And that's an operation on the soul and on the spirit. And this is what, what can happen. What do we learn about Jesus from this verse? What do, we, what do we see that can help us? He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It is Jesus himself who met you the day you gave your life to him. He was there in his spirit to commence the journey with you. And he will see you through to the end. He will ensure you get to the finished tape. Paul says to the Philippian church, He who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And then the verse in Romans 12, 2 goes on to say, For the joy that was set before him, he does all of these things. He scorns the cross and so on. The joy that was set before him. I always wondered, what joy was Christ seeing that gave him whatever it took to endure the pain of the cross? What did he see? What was the joy? I believe it's the joy of seeing you and me become children of God. I believe it's the joy that he had of seeing us take upon us the righteousness that he provides I believe if it is the joy of seeing us grow in the faith. I believe it is the joy of seeing us complete the race and receive the prize. And for all of that joy, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Because of that joy, he goes to Calvary. And just always remember what he did for us on that day almost 2,000 years ago. The cross was just about the most hideous form of torture, torturous death the Romans could ever have invented. Stoning would have been far less torturous. Hanging would have been much quicker. But no, in order to fulfill so many ancient prophecies, it had to be a Roman cross. And he endured it because of the joy. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The throne of God the Father is the place from which God rules all time and eternity. And the seat on the right hand is that throne upon which joint authority sits. It's the place of reward for the act of sacrifice on Calvary. Jesus sits there. And what does Jesus now do seated on that throne to the right of the Father? Well, there are a number of matters which he attends to. But there's one in particular which I would leave with you this morning. You see it in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 8. Jesus is the mediator between us and the Father. That's a deep and, deep and mysterious theological concept we can't fully explore. But I'd like to just look at one facet of it as we close. Let's go back to what we've been saying about prayer these past few weeks. I believe... Every time we pray, we have the incredible privilege and gift of God the Son presenting our petitions to God the Father and pleading our cause. Christ has already purchased our forgiveness and he is now the mediator of this new covenant. He continues to mediate on our behalf, even now. 
He asks the Father to mercifully accept our worship and to hear our pleas and to consider our requests. I have news for you this morning. Our prayers do not make their way up to heaven in some kind of, and then kind of bounce around in some kind of pointless, empty, cosmic echo chamber. No, 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 no. Our prayers, each and every prayer, when prayed, my Father, is carefully carried by the Son to the Father for his gracious consideration. How does that make us feel as we pray? As we've been instructed these past weeks from Matthew 6. We pray our Father, knowing that his Son sits at his right hand, carrying our prayers before the Father for his consideration. So it's all about giving up, it's all about taking up, and it's all about looking up. Am I determined to be one of those whom God can really use in this place to bring revival and growth? Or am I content to sit in the stands as a spectator, looking on as others run their race? Am I a conduit for God's blessing to flow in and through me to bless the lives of those around me? Or am I to be a blockage to the work of God in this place? You see, we're one or the other. We're contributing or we're congesting. We are running in the race or we are taking up one of the lanes and just standing there and watching as others race past. These are important questions, both for the health of the church and for our own eternal destiny. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And with your eyes closed, and I ask you on Zoom to follow with us. I ask you to close your eyes and ask. I'm going to ask one or two questions, and I ask you to ponder these questions as we close. How is the race going? Do I get a sense that I am truly in the race, or am I feeling sidelined and falling away? Am I carrying with me too much baggage? Am I laden with entangling sins or caught up in a struggle to even get out of the starting blocks? Have I made some progress, but now I feel as if I am falling away? Others seem to be flashing past me as they grow in their Christian lives, and I seem to be standing still. Has the race become too much for me? Am I feeling exhausted by my own efforts to get to the front and never able to make any real progress? And with your eyes closed, let me just read those verses once again as we pray through what God says to us. Therefore, seeing we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. I don't know how you answered those questions or how, what you thought about them, but I want to say this to you. There is a way. There is a way either to get into the race the very first time, there is a way to get into the race, that is to become a Christian and experience the changed life. There is a way. There's also a way if you're in the race but stumbling. There's also a way if you are falling and having a real sense of loss and not experiencing the victory you know you should be experiencing. You can even today find yourself back on track, experiencing again your first love and the joy of your salvation. There is a way. Whether it's to get into the race the first time or to get back on track. And the answer is exactly the same. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. God bless you. Thank you.